We, uh, we are having a blast this weekend. It's been challenging. You know, it's a fun weekend, Palm Sunday. It's, it's sort of like the, the party weekend. It's like everything's good, everything's great, and Jesus is finally acknowledged to be the Son of God, and it's just, what a, what a great time. So we're going to talk about all of that, but I've got to tell you, I'm going to move us into kind of what I've simply called uh, the mess before Easter. Because sometimes when I read the Easter story, it's all upbeat because he's alive. Palm Sunday, it's all upbeat because he's riding into Jerusalem, he's recognized as the king. But so often we don't take the weekend to examine what really happens during the week. And so I'm going to ask you to let me sort of step out of my comfort zone a little bit. How many of you know I'm a very positive person? And uh, I like being positive. I see the glass half full, half full. It really is who I am. But this week has really challenged me. And it's almost put me in a, a, a kind of a vein of thought that I just never live in. And so I'm going to try to kind of make it through. And, and I want to take you with me. And I want us to feel feelings. So maybe kind of sit up and go, God, what do you want to say to me that I haven't really noticed about this story before? Uh, any March Madness fans in here? Okay, how'd your, how'd your team do? Okay, <laughs> it's always hard to get it, but if you've ever played sports, you understand, uh, especially in a tournament style, it's, it's huge when you win a game you weren't supposed to win. And you just, it's like you're on top of the world. And then let's say the next game you have an easy team that you're supposed to demolish, and they win. And you just feel lower than low. That's a little bit like Palm Sunday going into the next week. As a matter of fact, how many of you have had at least a season in your life when you're like, man, life is good. Things are going really well right now, and I'm happy, and relationships are good, finances are good, I like what I'm doing. And then you have this thought, when will it all go bad? <laughs> when, when is this going to go bad? Matter of fact, in our culture, we have this little thing that we do. I'm going to do it, see if you know. What is that? Knock on wood. What does that mean? How many of you do that sometimes? It's kind of like saying, my car has never broken down. And it's a superstition that I just jinxed myself. You know, if, if, I, if I say something really positive and my car has never broken down, then I better knock on wood to say, I hope it never does. And so I need to pay attention to that. That's, that's sort of, again... I think what happens is Palm Sunday, Jesus gives his disciples this instruction to go get a colt, a, a donkey. And so the disciples, and he just says, go up this hill to this house, and you're going to see this colt tied to this post. Just tell the owner, the master has need of it. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't one of those guys. I mean, that's so embarrassing, right? And so they do. They walk up, and the owner comes out, and they're taking the colt. They're stealing it. Well, they're not stealing it because the owner inquires, what are you doing? That's my colt. And they say, oh, the master needs it. Oh, okay, fine then. So, so they take the colt, and they know it's a big deal. They, they get it all ready. They put their cloaks on it. Jesus sits on it, and he's riding down this, this road down Gethsemane into Jerusalem, and lots of people are there. And everyone for the first time is acknowledging that this is Jesus, the king, the son of David. They actually cut palm branches, which they only did for royalty. 
They took their cloaks off and laid them in the road. And then they started screaming out, Hosanna in the highest, son of David. Now, when they said son of David, you know what that meant. That meant they were recognizing this man on the donkey as the Messiah. That's a big deal. Now, granted, to be realistic, the Romans weren't there. Probably the religious leaders weren't there because they were frustrated by that. But the disciples and the followers of Jesus, those who had been touched by his miracles, his teachings, they were all there. And this was like the one time, if there's ever a best moment in the life of Jesus, it's this day. So we need to celebrate that. And he's probably riding that colt and he's thinking, wow, all these people love who I am. They finally know who I am. I'm being recognized for being the king, the Messiah, the promised one, and that night around the fire, I have a feeling the disciples are like, hi, if I can see Peter and John, go, dude, that was awesome. That's how it's supposed to be. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom now. He's going to knock Rome over, and we are on our way, and we're going to be his boys, and we get to be in places of leadership. This is everything we've dreamed of. And then Jesus is kind of probably standing in the shadows going, Because he knows. He knows he's going to have a really, really big struggle coming up. And it's going to be really difficult for him. And I think he's, he's scared. You say, what? He's God. How could he be scared? I think he's scared. I'm going to show you why I believe he's nervous. He's, he's anxious. Yes, God, the Son of God, is fully man. How many of you know that? He's fully man. He's moved with our feelings. And so he's having feelings in this week that he's never had before. And I want to try to point that out. And I want us to openly talk about that because sometimes we have those feelings too. And it doesn't mean you don't believe in God. And it doesn't mean that you are hopeless or you've lost all your faith. It just means that that's what really happens to us as human beings in this life. So I want, I want us to just dive in and think about what this really means to us all. Number one in your outline, just follow along on the, on the back of your program there. Peter denies his friendship with Jesus. Peter denies his friendship. I never thought this would happen. If I didn't already know the story watching Peter, I know he's kind of up and down on a yo-yo ride emotionally, but this is a guy who, I'm telling you, he is passionate about the Lord. He makes his share of mistakes, but for this to happen, they've had the, the Last Supper, as it's called. Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples He's going to go pray in Gethsemane, and just, just a few hours later, he finds himself in this moment in John 13, verse 36. If you have a Bible and you want to lay it open, we're going to look at John 13 here a little bit. It says this, because Jesus has been talking about going away, meaning heaven, because he's going to die. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But, <laughs> so, so Peter here. Why can't I come now, Lord? He's like, a, he's like a little boy, you know, in a big body. Why can't I come now, Lord? He asked. I'm, I'm ready to die for you. It's this unsolicited statement of loyalty. And, and he just, it just blurts out of Peter. I'm, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. I wouldn't be surprised, and I'm not trying to make this dramatic, if Jesus turns his head away 
and has a tear wall up in his eye because he loves Peter. And he's devastated by this. He's hurt by someone who says, I will die for you, and yet he knows that this man is going to deny that he even knows him. That's a pretty bad feeling. You know, I think about why Peter did this. And if you read commentators, you'll, you'll see all kinds of ideas about why he did this. Fear is probably the biggest motivator. He, he was basically around a fire, and some people started gathering around in the courtyard, and they were not followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, they were accusers of him. And, and he knew he was in a crowd that could get him in trouble. And, and someone said, I think you were with him. And he, he says, no, I, I wasn't. And I think the first time he says it, he says it just conversationally, no, not me. And someone says, no, I, I saw you with him. And he goes, no, not me. And the third time when the lady says, no, I saw you. You're one of them. Uh, a couple translations actually say that, that he, he cursed. Like he, 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 got, he, he got animated, whatever it is. But he was trying to make a point that, no, I'm, I'm not a good guy. And no, I'm, I'm not one of, one of those guys. And then the rooster crows. And the Bible has a, an interesting thing here. It says that Peter wept bitterly. And, and he ran out into the darkness. It was a moment in which the rooster crowing caught him in a very vulnerable, low place in his life. Have you ever heard the rooster crow? Have you ever been caught? Have you ever been in that moment where you know you made the bad decision and it's hurt you and it's hurt others and it's real and it's painful? That's what happened to Peter. But Jesus was wounded by this. Guys, we can't just say, oh, Jesus, he expected it. He's the son of God. No, I want you to stop and go, what was it like for Jesus to, to ab absolutely be denied that this friend even knew him? And it gets worse. I'm sorry. Number two, Judas betrays him. Judas betrays him. At the Last Supper that I referred to earlier, um, Judas is, is there and... We need to understand something about Judas. Was he one of the disciples? Yes. Was he with Jesus the whole time, like early on, like Peter, James, and John? Pretty much. He was in the first gathering. He, he becomes, um, did he have a significant role among the disciples? Anybody? Yes? Yeah, he was the treasurer. He was the, he was the money handler. How many of you put your money with people you trust? Yeah. That would be good there. That would be good. They trusted him. See, we have the advantage of reading Scripture all these years later, and what happens is when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write about Judas, what do they say? Judas, son of Iscariot, parentheses, the one who betrayed Jesus, in parentheses. So he had no chance with us. I didn't like him the first time I read his name. <laughs> right? So he's got the parentheses of his life. By the way, what are the parentheses of your life? What do people say about you when you're long gone? Judas was marked forever as the one who betrayed the Lord. That's sad. But that's how he's known to us because he did what I'm about to read. He really did it. And he betrayed Jesus. He was trusted. The disciples would have never dreamed it would be Judas. John 13, verse 21. Jesus is at supper with them, and he says, 
it says, now Jesus was deeply troubled. If you, if you Google around on that and you look at commentators, that, that word means to the core. His soul is perplexed, exhausted in spirit. He's really moved by this. And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And if you read the whole story, you're going to find out that he says it's going to be the one who dips the bread. And sure enough, he and Judas dipped in the, the bread in the cup. And, and the disciples really didn't know what was going on. And Jesus says, do what you must do. And Judas gets up from the table and runs out of the room. And, and the disciples murmur saying, oh, Jesus told him to go pay for the meal. They, they don't understand why. Because it would never be Judas. They would never imagine that it would be him. And yet Jesus is, is stuck there in this room knowing that someone who has followed him and proclaimed in him and believed he's the son of God is about to go betray him. Man, ever been betrayed? I don't want to stir up horrible memories, but you know, if you're alive, you've been hurt by somebody in your life, right? Uh, no doubt about it. And, and it's not easy. I, I have a, a friend who had a, something happen to him. He's, I guess names are not important. Uh, uh, Jeff Lucas or something like that. Um, but he, 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 he uh, we were talking one day about Facebook, which I am not a part of for reasons like this. And, um, and he said, Jerry, I really had my feelings hurt last night. I said, what happened? He said, someone defriended me. And, and I'm, I, I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's, I guess you can hit a button that just says I'm no longer your friend. Goodbye. No reason or anything. And I said, well, were you close to him? And he said, no, not really. But it just was a shock that, that he was just defriended me like that. And I said, well, where is he? I'll take him out. I'll, I, don't, I, don't, I, have, I have no personal connection here. I'm, 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 a, I'm a loyal friend, man. I'm a defensive shepherd guy, you know. And so let's go get him. And he's like, No. Um, but it just hurt my feelings. And we talked about this whole idea of what it means to have something happen where you lose confidence in someone or someone doesn't trust you anymore. You get wounded. You get, you get hurt. And, and that starts to grow in your heart. And all of a sudden you're disappointed by someone. But I'm telling you something. I have never, ever in my life been betrayed, hands down, which cost me my life by someone like Judas did to Jesus. And, and I'm telling you another thing, in, in reading all about this and studying this out this week, one of the things that ticked me off a little bit is I read commentator after commentator all about Judas. Why did he do it? Well, he was probably trying to force Jesus into a decision, knowing it would bring the kingdom. Maybe it wasn't just the 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he wasn't as greedy as you thought. Maybe blah, 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 pages and pages and pages. Finally, I just threw the book down and I said, this is ridiculous. What about Jesus? Everybody's worried about Judas. I don't give a rip about Judas. I want to know how did Jesus feel when one of his followers betrayed him totally and completely. That is horrible. And I think it broke his heart. I think he was devastated. Well, he knew it was going to happen. That doesn't matter. He was devastated. And it gets worse. Sorry. <laughs> Number three, the disciples let Jesus suffer alone. There's, there's this moment in the story where they had a chance to prop him up and care for him and believe in him and invest in him and give him a pep talk and say, come on, a boy, you can do this. But they didn't. Matter of fact, they did the opposite. In Matthew 26, they go to this place 
and it's the, in Gethsemane where he's going to pray. Some of you remember this story. And, and he's, 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 he's at the bottom, and he needs some help. Look at Matthew 26. If you have your Bible, Matthew 26, or write it in your notes if you want to read this later. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He wanted to be alone, but he needed them there. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and listen to this language. He became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Do you think Jesus is a liar? Do you think he's just making this up? I've never seen language like this coming out of him, ever. You, you read every word he's ever said. It's never that, ever, not once. He's, he's, he's beyond exhausted by this. He's feeling our sins right here. He's feeling the weight of our sins. He's feeling the weight of the world on him. He's feeling like this is really all going to happen. I can't imagine. He says, stay here and keep watch with me. In other words, pray for me. I'm hurting. He went on a little farther and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it's possible... Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. That's how, that's how deep this goes. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, couldn't you watch even with me for like one hour? This is, this is one of the first times Jesus has had many rebukes, but they're never about him. This is like one of the first times you see him saying, don't you give a rip about me in my life? He's, he's really coming after him. Couldn't you just pray for me for an hour? This is like the biggest thing in my life. Keep watching, pray, so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus needs a friend. And he goes over and he prays in anguish again, and it's all about this, this cup of suffering and this death he's facing, and he's, he doesn't know what else to do, and he's fully man. He feels the feelings. And he goes back and they're sleeping again. I, I think he can't even believe it. He tries to wake them up. He leaves again. He prays. And this is the moment. This is the moment that's been driving me crazy all week. It's frustrating to me. He goes back and they're sleeping again. And I don't know. I just, the Bible even says that he basically just says, sleep on. Go ahead. This doesn't, this doesn't mean to you what it means to me. And I think he probably looked up into heaven like, I have no one. And he was totally, in this moment, alone. There was no one. Not one friend, not one companion. Even God was about to put the sins of man on him. That's pretty lonely. That's pretty desperate. And sometimes I forget that about the story. And this week I've had a revelation of sorrow and sadness of what he endured and what he went through. And then it gets worse. <laughs> Number four, Jesus dies. Now we know there's a good ending to this. But I want you to stay in the sorrow for a moment because what happens here is pretty incredible. I hope you'll be here Good Friday. It's going to be an amazing time. Always is. In Matthew 27, we're going to see and we're going to read in a second the sayings of Jesus. He basically says seven different things while he's on the cross before he dies. And this is the last one. 
in verse 50, and it says, Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit, meaning he died. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was a sign that now God was available to man. We no longer have to go through a high priest for the forgiveness of our sins. There's a lot in that. But look at what else happened. The earth shook. Rocks split apart. There was a demonstration of power. This death is different than any death of any human ever in history. Why? Because Jesus was God. And this is a powerful moment. And death often comes before resurrection. Well, number five is a little brighter, and I'm thankful for this. And it's about the Roman officer. And the Roman officer has, has the light come on. You know, that phrase, the light come on, comes on in our heart, our emotions, in our mind, in our lives. The light comes on in him. And this is one of the greatest proclamations. I've never seen it like I have this week in Matthew 27. This Roman officer is there the whole time. Who knows how many crucifixions he's seen. In verse 54 of Matthew 27, the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened because they had never seen anything like this before. And this Roman officer stands at the foot of the cross and looks up and sees Jesus and he says, this man was truly the son of God. Now, this means a lot to me personally because I've really thought about this. I'm a, I'm a logical thinker. And the reason I think this means so much is I find it fascinating that the first proclamation of Jesus being the Son of God after his death was not a disciple. It wasn't the mother of Jesus. It wasn't Mary. It wasn't Martha. It wasn't a follower. It was a Roman soldier who is not paid to think like this. He, he doesn't have to say it. Why would he proclaim it? He's seen how many people die. He's part of the death. He's part of the crucifixion. He's not been a follower of Jesus. He has nothing to gain, but he stands there and he says, this is the son of God. How in the world would he know such a thing? I'll tell you how. Revelation by presence. Revelation by presence. Have you ever heard the phrase, you just had to be there? I was, I was with some people a, a week or two ago, and, and they just had this laughter going. I mean, they were laughing to the point they couldn't catch their breath. And I said, what is so funny? And they, they said, oh, you won't believe what just happened, and we're just laughing about it again. It happened the other day, and we're remembering it. And, and they told me the story of what happened, and I stood there and went, that isn't that funny. <laughs> and they said it. Well, you had to be there. You had to be there, uh, you know, or, or something scary happens and you're telling someone about it or if you experience it to get it was so creepy and so scary and then you find yourself telling someone about it and, and it doesn't sound that scary and you kind of go, but well, you just had to be there, you know, to understand it. If this guy, if this Roman soldier could walk up onto this stage today, if he could look at you and tell you what happened that day, I think you would believe him. You know why? Because you would see that he was there. 
You would know that he experienced something. You would know that that revelation came to him not based on a story written or spoken, but that came to him by the presence of a mighty God who died in front of him. That's the Son of God. I know it's true. Revelation by presence. The earth heaved at the death of the Son of God. This man felt it happen. You had to be there. Praise God. There's a few takeaways that I want you to have as we wrap this up today. These are very important. Sometimes the best days follow the worst days, number one. I want to say to some of you walking in darkness right now, don't stop walking. There's this passage in Scripture that says sorrow comes at night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. You know what that means? You know what that's saying? It's saying that there is hope on the other side of this disaster. It means that don't, don't let yourself get so caught up in this moment that you want to end it. Young people, teenagers, students, please hear my heart. I know life sometimes can feel emotionally so draining to you, and you wonder if you even want to go another day. But trust me on this. Make it through the night. Make it through the dark hours. Make it through this emotion because God has a plan and a purpose for your life and he's never done. He's never done in the dark hour. He'll work that dark hour into your future, I promise you. Keep fighting. Number two, suffering and sorrow should not surprise us. I need to put this in here because so many believers think that when they accept Christ and they follow the Lord that they're going to be exempt from, from pain and suffering and sorrow and cancer and death or injury or accidents. God could intervene every time we are, you know, close to something, but he doesn't. I don't think we always know when he does, but many times he doesn't and people die. People who love God die. And so we have to really pay attention and we have to understand that we are not in heaven yet. This is the earth and this is a very evil and wicked place. And a lot of bad stuff happens here. That's why we have to walk in victory holding on to the Lord in spite of the evil in this world. Number three, other people's bad decisions impact my life. I don't like this point, but it's true. There are people who have made decisions that could hurt you, injure you. Someone drinks and drives and kills somebody. That decision they made wounds someone else. How many of you locked your car in the parking lot today? Why'd you do that? We're at a church. <laughs> Some of you have security systems in your home. Why? Because not everyone out there is trustworthy. There's some tough things that happen to people in this life. And so we need to pay attention to that. You've been a, a victim of someone's bad decision, but number four is so true. There is comfort in knowing that Jesus feels my pain. Jesus really does feel your pain. When he's in the garden alone and there was no one, when he was betrayed by a friend, there's no pain or suffering that you could endure that he hasn't already been there. I can't say that about you. I can't say I understand your pain. He can. And um, all this painful story is for that. 
Everything he endured is for that. I've had a, a really rough couple of days. And I don't know how all this works in the spirit, but last night was very difficult for me to bring this message. I, I, I started crying at point two, just a little brokenness in me because I, I feel horrible for what Jesus went through. I've never felt his pain like I needed to in my whole life. And then I, I started thinking about what it must have been for, like for him to be there with no one. No one believing in him or standing up for him. And it really bugged me. And then I started thinking about Isaiah 53, that I helped put him on that cross of my sin. I want to ask you just to maybe close your eyes and think about these words. I'm going to read it. I hope you'll listen like you've never listened before. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried, was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But we, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole again. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet God laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus bore your pain and your sorrow.